Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there and that your death race is coming along well. For those who remember my house hunting saga from last episode, good news. Uh, my wife and I found and signed for an apartment that fits everything we're looking for, so that's one hurdle done. Uh, hopefully that means I have a bit more time to watch the movies in theaters, though we have the whole movie situation to sort out. But that's Future's Me's problem. Now, as far as the death race goes, I've watched about another four this past week. Uh, the four we'll be covering this week's episode, the animated feature films. That puts me at 23 out of 38 feature films completed, uh, with 15 features and 15 shorts still remaining for 30 total. Uh, there was some news also this week that some films are going to be coming to digital, at least here in the U.S. Uh, Drive My Car, the Japanese international nominee that's also nominated for Best Picture, Director, and Adapted Screenplay, got picked up by HBO Max for a March 2nd release date. Also, presumably releasing on digital that day is Licorice Pizza, which up to this point had not been available online in any form since its physical media release is about two weeks later on March 15th. And also on March 2nd, we should also be expecting to see West Side Story coming uh, to Disney+. Plus. So as such, I'm actually going to be going ahead and adjusting the schedule a little bit for the rest of the season. Uh, since this coming long pre- is the long President's Day weekend, it'll be one of the few weekends in the next month when I'm not moving stuff and I don't have other plans. Uh, so I'm going to be planning on trying to watch stuff in theaters that wouldn't be available otherwise. Um, namely, the two uh, now mostly um, those two aforementioned films plus the two international films, Parallel Mothers and The Worst Person in the World. But you know, given the recent uh, you know, pickups or, or, or uh, dates given for these films to come to digital, I'm actually going to rearrange those a little bit since I don't need to rush to see those. Um, you know, I'm still going to watch the uh, the two international features and also throw in Lunana a Yak in the Classroom, which is online, um, which I wasn't so I was going to have time to watch. So next week will be those three uh, international films. Again, Lunana, uh, Parallel Mothers, and The Worst Person in the World, alongside my thoughts on Flea, Being the Ricardos, and Spencer. Uh, the week after, in the the first week of March, we'll be going to the more technical nominees, most of which are available online, um, though Serrano um, is going to be in, coming out on theaters uh, this coming week, actually. Um, but, you know, actually, my work uh, is asking us to come in on Thursday for a happy hour, and the Angelica Film Center is right around the corner, uh, so I figure, why not pop in afterwards to catch, uh, to catch the movie? Um, then the second week of March, we'll do Licorice Pizza and Drive My Car at some point, um, as well as hopefully some of the sort programs from the IFC, and I believe uh, those will be coming out in the next week as well. And then the week after, you know, around the 14th of March or so will be the week I try to cover the documentaries, all of which would be available online. Um, That's also the weekend I'm tentatively moving apartments, so pray I find some time to be able to do all this. Now, while I'm working on my own death race still, um, as of the recording of this episode, there are 23 individuals on the OscarsDeathRace.com website who have completed their race, uh, 20 more than last week. As always, we want to shout out everyone who's completed the race in the community. Um, so congratulations to uh, Hector3939, Ezra Fitz, Baby Annette, El Dorado, Original Song is Dumb, I can't help but agree with that username, uh, Kath Lizzle, Sabado, uh, BMAC Murray, uh, Cabeza Head, uh, Unclear, Enya Survivor, Marianist, Kilua Lightning Bolt Emoji, MB Bananas, Jeff, Sandwich Spy, Kathy Heart Emoji, The Nico NG, Jehehe38, and Almo WBS. Uh, congratulations again to everyone who's completed the race so far. Um, according to OscarsDeathRace.com, 570 people. 72 people have signed up uh, to compete in the race. So if you're still working on it, you've got company. Um, and again, shout out to Ford versus per- Ford versus Ferrari on Reddit for setting up the site. Uh, make sure if you can support them on uh, Coffee, which you can find linked at the bottom of their site. 
All right, uh, moving to this week's episode. We're going over possibly my favorite category uh, in the whole Oscars, Best Animated Feature. Now, if movies are supposed to take us places in the world we've never lived in before um, or have experiences we wouldn't have in real life, I think animation is the zenith of that goal. After a while, while live accents certainly can transport us to new worlds, it's still to some degree constrained by having to be set by the limits of the real world. Um, in animation, you can stretch and squish your characters however you want. Um, you literally build worlds around them in whatever limited only by the author the animator's imagination um and yeah you know perhaps it's my longtime appreciation of you know animation in all its forms from japanese anime to stop motion masterpieces but i always find the work put out to be there to be some of my favorite it's really the same you know that the category is perennially seen as a kid's category with many anonymous academy voters commit confessing to usually just going with what their kids like the most um added some questionable nominations over the few over the years um when some excellent artworks that could be nominated were right there and were just ignored and you know this category really does get disordered of the stick and you know even among animation there's you know kind of tends to be ignored just kind of like you know how non-seriously it ends up being now this year as i mentioned this last episode we have a first out of the five animated feature films nominated three of them are disney studio from a disney studio uh, ryan the last dragon and kanto from walt disney animated studios and then luca from pixar uh, in the past it's always only been two of the five nominees from disney and its subsidiaries though looking a little bit closer you know someone pointed out to me online that you know the reason for that was that there actually weren't two more than two competitive films in a given year the only possible exception being 2016 when finding dory was nominated. Now, whether you think Disney dominating this category is good or bad is an entirely different conversation entirely. Um, I definitely know there were some films out there that, you know, probably could have been nominated that weren't just, you know, due to uh, just not simply being in those spots here. Now, in addition, we have one film from Sony Animation, Vinsels vs. the Machines, which is currently on Netflix, as well as our triple threat this year, Flea, an animated docudrama from Denmark that won the World Cinema Documentary Competition at Sundance in 2021. Uh, for this episode, we'll go in release date order. So, starting off, we're going to go with, and also go by studio. So, we're going to start with the Disney films first, get those out of the way. Um, we're gonna, that means we're going to be starting with Raya and the Last Dragon. Now, Raya is the 59th feature film from the Walt Disney Animated Studios, released both in theaters and via Premiere Access on Disney+, Plus, so an additional $30 fee, on March 5th. It is co-directed by Don Hall, who directed Academy Award winner Big Hero 6 and Moana, as well as Moana, and it's also directed by Carlo Lopez Estrada of Blindspotting fame. It was co-written by Del Lim of Crazy Rich Asians fame, as well as Queen Wynn. Um, the story follows Raya, a princess from the world of Kumandra, a world where dragons once lived but have since been splintered into five separate kingdoms. Uh, notably, the world of Kumandra is based on various Southeast Asian cultures and countries, another first for Disney. Uh, Raya herself is voiced by Kelly Marie Tran of Star Wars fame, with the dragon Sisu being voiced by Aquafina and Gemma Chan, Daniel Day Kim, Benedict Wong, and Sandra Oh are other cast members as well. On Rotten Tomatoes, it is certified fresh with a 94% critics, 97% audience score, and the letterbox it sits at 3.5 with 215,000 viewers. Now, in my circles, you know, there was a lot of hype for Raya when it released. You know, if you've listened to the last season uh, with Minari or on my box office podcast with Sang-Chi this past year, you'll have heard how, from my perspective, you know, the Asian American community was really excited to just have more representation, um, especially for Southeast Asian variety, since most of the big films out there lately have been mostly from the East Asian perspective. Now, I was so as a result, I was always going to have a bit of a soft spot for the film being a Filipino-American. 
And, you know, there's certainly some critiques of the film on that front. You know, while Kelly Marie Tran is Vietnamese-American um, and originally was supposed to be Cassie Steele, who was Filipino-Canadian, I believe, um, most of the rest of the voice cast is actually East Asian without a lot of Southeast Asian representation. Um, I also saw the critique that, from a, that while it is a Southeast Asian-inspired world, it wasn't as cultural-specific as other films, such as Encanto, which we'll talk about later, being very Colombian, or Sanchi being very specifically Chinese. Instead, Commander is a mashup of Filipino, Thai, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Laosian, and many other cultures as well. Um, everything kind of all at once without having anything in specific. Um, you know, I mean, yes, the hat is, is from Philippine, is from, is from a Filipino hat. You know, the, uh, the, the, um, the architecture may be Thai, for example. Um, but, you know, the fact that these kind of get all get hotspots and not distinguished from each other, um, you know, kind of from, from some people's perspective, and this is a valid perspective, I think, um, could be seen as a form of eraser. Um, it wasn't even the case where you could say, okay, this, you know, of the five countries in Kumandra, this one maps to the Philippines, this one maps to Vietnam, this one maps to Singapore, and so on. Um, it's all kind of, you know, melded up together. There wasn't even that much distinction between the countries beyond their environment, nothing really culturally. So in a sense, you know, I, I would say though that the central theme of the film, right, is about you know trusting each other and, and you know the power you can you're stronger when you come together as opposed to trying to do things by yourself. That kind of supports this pan Asian, pan Southeast Asian depiction uh, to some degree, right? Because at least it's consistent in that regard. Um, you know, and you know, I, I could certainly again I could certainly see how someone who was you know hoping to see a very Filipino or a very Vietnamese depiction, such as we got in Mulan, for example, you know, could be very disappointed in that. You know that. That said, you know, again, given the theme of unity and whatnot, it's really hard to get mad uh, at a theme of you know bringing people together. Um, even if, even if, granted, the theme was very heavy-handed in its delivery with super predictable plot beats. Now, the other thing that kind of bothered me about this setting, right, is that, you know, it didn't really need to be a South Asian setting for the plot, right? Now, you know, in a hypothetical parallel universe where instead of a Southeast Asian culture, they pick, you know, South Asian setting or one inspired by African culture or, you know, uh, or, you know, like they did Moana, you know, um, you know the 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 Polynesian and, and 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 Pacific Islanders, or you know even Native American cultures, or other places in 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 Latin America, right? Like if you kind of had like a mismatch of all of these, you know, geographically, you know, close to each other regions, but you know, still have distinct, but kind of all melded together without anything standing out. At the end of the day, I don't think anything fundamental about the story would need to change, right? Maybe Sisu isn't a dragon per se, but some other mythological being, right? Maybe the clothes and weapons and martial arts are different. Maybe the food and the names are different. But the central quest line of like, hey, here are five countries, you know, some MacGuffin ends up getting split among the five countries, and then, you know, the protagonist has to go and find them and end up reuniting the world to, and learn the value of trusting each other. That fundamentally doesn't need to change. Nothing about the setting really tied in to that central plot more so than any other location would have been. Now compare that to Mulan, right, where themes of family and honor very closely intertwined with Eastern Confucian philosophies to some degree, right? Or Shang-Chi, you know, more recently, where the Chinese-American identity, right, of, Sha of Shang being torn between his past, uh, you know, with Wenwu and his future living in, in San Francisco, um, you know, kind of like that... That kind of is a is a analog in the dichotomy in an example for the Asian American experience of being torn between two worlds, right? Um, you know that kind of like a, a synergy between the setting and the plot. Um, I think you know doesn't really exist here in Rye, unfortunately. It kind of begs the question, right? Why did this film turn out the way it needed to be? Why did it need to be made? 
And also speaking of plot, you know, I think one thing, again, that keeps me from feeling that's really innovative is that we've kind of seen this story before, again, even in a similar setting. It's called Avatar The Last Airbender. I mean, tell me if you've heard this before, but spunky teenage protagonists quest around the world inspired by Aizen, forms a ragtag crew from different countries to bring peace to the world torn by war as he's the only one who can really bring them all together. When you look at like that, you know, Raya unfortunately ends up on the sword end of that comparison because, you know, Avatar The Last Airbender is just, firstly, just that good. But secondly, because it's like a three-season television series, it has the space to breathe with the plot, with better character development, with better um, with better world building, right? Um, and for better or worse, when you're trying to compare a two-hour movie versus a three-season show, you know, you can get a lot more out of the three-season show, right? And, you know, it's not, it's unfortunate for Raya that I kind of have that in my head. Um, but, you know, when they're kind of suffering off from plot beat to plot beat every 15 minutes from country to country, um, which, again, things we've all seen before, it's hard to really see it as being truly innovative, at least on the narrative front. Now, it sounds like I've been complaining about Raya a lot, and certainly I do have my nitpicks uh, with it. Um, that said, on the whole, I rather enjoyed the film, right? Overall, I, I'm pretty positive on it. As always, animation out of Disney is top-notch, and Riot. It's doubly impressive when you can consider that this was actually the the entire production was more or less done uh, working from home throughout the entire pandemic, which you know doesn't really show that there was anything lacking in that visual element of the film. You know, some of the alternate animation styles used early on, you know, for storytelling purposes, um, was pretty stunning. And you know, I may be exposing myself a bit, but I think Vi is one of the most attractive main characters Disney has had in a long time. Uh, certainly, the animation of water and hair is you know probably what stands out here on par with some of the Pixar stuff from the past. And you know, again, for the primary audience, kids, certainly, it told an important lesson of, it, it, you know, in a very easy to appreciate manner that, yes, it's over and o- hit you over the head, um, but, you know, it's something they're going to be wanting to watch over and over again, which, if you go by streaming numbers, Raya was the third most streamed movie of last year, so they definitely have been seeing it over and over again. Uh, overall, I give Raya a three out of five. Uh, next up, we have Luca, the latest Pixar film. Now, really, this was released on June 13th, and it was a Disney Plus exclusive, released for free, so no additional premiere access fee. Um, it's a directorial debut, featured directorial debut, rather, of Enrico Casarossum, uh, who's a Pixar director of the short film La Luna. Um, this one tells the story of a sea monster boy, Luca, of the, off of the Italian Riviera, who, alongside his friend Alberto, uh, infiltrate a human town of Porto Rosso for a summer of fun. Uh, Luca and Alberto are voiced by Jacob Tremblay and Jack Dylan Grazer, respectively. It has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 86% from audiences, and on Letterboxd has a 3.9 out of 424,000 viewers. So, Pixar has always had a sign compared to the Disney animated studios and a bit of prestige about the name when it comes to awards season, right? They've won 11 best animated features with classics like Finding Nemo, Wally, Up, Ratatouille, Inside Out, Coco, and most recently Soul. Being frank, I don't think Luca is up there to the, to those classics there, right? Like while I think of Pixar films, you know, the word that comes to mind is whimsy, right? It's taking worlds and situations we thought we knew from everyday life and kind of having us imagine a different take on them. What if bugs and toys or cars could talk? You know, what if monsters under your bed were blue-collar workers? Or what if the emotions in your head piloted you like a Gundam mech? You know, even in the most recent movie before this, Soul, how does question the very nature of existence and souls and purpose, right? 
presumably, you know, I'd imagine the logline for Luca is something along the lines of, what if you explore the idea of friendship, right, and in childhood on the French Riviera through the lens of sea monsters who can turn into boys? Now, you know, certainly it seems to be a very personal story for the director. Um, he grew up, you know, in Italy after all, but I still wonder, you know, what's the takeaway of the film? You know, presumably there's something about, you know, moralizing about, you know, you must embrace the unknown and don't listen to Bruno, not, not talk about Bruno, but don't listen to Bruno, that's a different movie. Um, don't listen to the Bruno in the back of your head telling you that you can't do it, right? Um, but I think it's still lacking kind of that, that transcendental something that makes Pixar Pixar, right? At least narratively, right? You know, it, cer- it certainly plays out like a very typical coming-of-age story, which, you know, we kind of expect a little bit more out of Pixar beyond the typical coming-of-age story at this point. You know, in fact, I definitely get more than my fair share of this is basically just uh, a, a, a young male version of My Little Mermaid uh, or, or The Little Mermaid to some degree makes it a little bit of Finding Nemo. Now, and, you know, certainly Luca, you know, again, to the positives, it certainly looks and sounds fine. It doesn't feel like it has the same transcendental, boundary-pushing animation you've come to expect from Pixar. You know, it's not like it's gotten any worse, but it's just mostly stayed the same from where it's been, you know, all these years. You know, and again, it'd be fine, great, if there weren't other films out there pushing the boundary of what you can do and accomplish with animation out there. Again, this probably comes across as more negative than I actually am on the film, right? Luca's, again, fine movie, you know, pretty tightly tightly paced and especially if you're a parent for a kid who wants to get something to watch on Disney Plus by all means you know it's free being from the start it's the most watched streamed movie of 2021 which is something like 10 billion minutes or something like that total watched again overall quality wise you know I'd give it 13 out of 5 uh, or 3 out of 5 rather um, and out of the 24 Pixar films released to date it's probably around 13 or 14 right kind of like in the just outside the just at the top of the bottom half of, of Pixar films so yeah I mean that's Luke I don't really have too much more to say about it again just a fine film um you know, and finally, you know, we get to the most recent film, Encanto, which, you know, along with Flea, is nominated for three separate categories. Uh, animated feature, of course, as well as original song from Dos Oguritas, uh, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and original score. Uh, Encanto is the 60th animated feature of the Disney canon and is so and is co-directed by Byron Howard and Jared both, Bush, both who worked on Zootopia, as well as Therese Castro-Smith, who wrote uh, the screenplay along with Bush. Uh, on the musical side of things, you know, the eight original songs were written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, Miranda of Hamilton and In the Heights fame uh, with a 27-piece score uh, composed by Jermaine Franco, who is the first woman to ever score a Disney animated feature. It's set in Colombia, uh, and the story follows the Madrigal family, you know, led by their abuela through the eyes of granddaughter Mirabel Madrigal. Um, the Madrigals, 50 years ago, mysteriously were saved from an armed conflict through a magical house, Casita. Um, with their house comes magical powers as they come of age, uh, you know, all of them getting a different power except for Ma- Mirabelle. Uh, one day, the magic of the house is weakened and threatened, and it's up to Mirabelle to try and save her family and the magic. Uh, Mirabelle is played by Stephanie Beatrice, best known for director the, uh, Detective Diaz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 91% from critics and 93% from audience, with 3.7 out of 396,000 viewers on Letterboxd. So, again, Mostly I've been starting off my nitpicks. I'm going to try to start positive for, the, for once. Um, obviously, the music here, I think, is the strongest part of the film, right? It's very a very musical film. Um, you know, there's a reason you know, that we, we Don't Talk About Bruno has become the number one song on the Billboard charts, with a lot of people loving Surface Pressure as well. Now, Dos Orgoritas is the song nominated for Best Song, but that's likely due to it being, you know, that really, you know, typical balladist, emotional song that 
generally gets nominated for these sort of things. You know, I'm sure if they had known that Bruno would break out, they would have gone with that. Um, in any case, at the very least, the music is an integral part of the story as a Disney musical. Um, you know, again, there's that traditional of Broadway. I don't think quite think this is quite structured like a Broadway play per se. There definitely are elements of it, but it doesn't feel like something I would have expected to see a Broadway adaptation of, um, if you know what I mean. But, you know, of all the films I have seen in the original song category, it does make the most use of the song within the plot of the film. Uh, so I think it kind of deserves it on that. Uh, and I think it deserves it on that on that merit as opposed to just a song playing over the credits. Now, animation-wise, as always, again, Disney is, is at the top of the field. So the real question is how much do they outdo themselves? Again, kind of like Luca, they don't really do push too much, but there certainly are moments that pop. I will say, you know, when it comes to the clothing animes, I think it's probably the strongest. Uh, some of the animes on the sand they had was just like a whole other level of their physics engines that they've kind of developed for that. Um, but yeah, I think there, you know, there, there are definitely some pieces that, that, seem, that stand out, um, but others are kind of like, you know, what, what we've come to expect. I think compared to Ryan, though, this one leans a lot more into the cultural specificity of Colombia than, again, being a mismatch of generic regional tropes. Um, some things I've seen from discussion online, you know, they use miércoles as a polite form of mierda, which is like a swear, um, or they use, you know, the specific foods, such as arepas that are, that are there, or the clothing, which are traditional clothing, right? Even the diversity of skin tone among Colombians, you know. You know, the team really went deep and did their research, and you know, this is truly set in the real world as opposed to a world merely inspired by the real world, Right. And, you know, the background of Colombia plays a role here, too, right? You know, the, I mentioned that it started off as an armed conflict as kind of the instigating element uh, or event for the entire film. Um, you know, that that's a reference to, like, you know, the kind of, you know, long history of violence within Colombia, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, kind of like the isolated nature of mountain villages leading to, like, these unique cultures of, of isolation that are you know, kind of cut off from each other. Again, that's kind of like the idea of this encanto, enchanted place um, that kind of grows up around this little community. Now, moving to my nitpicks of the film, you know, I think the narrative is where it feels a little bit too overproduced um, or a little bit too convenient, right? And at the same time, a little bit too insular, right? You know, like with Raya, we kind of, you know, rush from scene to scene with Mirabel interacting with this member of the family or that member of the family, and you have a song about what's troubling them, and they get some sort of resolution, right? You know, in that sense, it's it's kind of Broadway, but at the, at the, there's no real, the overarching narrative is, it feels kind of weak for me, right? Um, it doesn't really do a lot of terms of giving us a, that satisfying narrative. It comes to a head, you know, as, as spoilers, again, they lose their powers as the magic goes away, and, you know, they have to learn the lesson of loving family no matter how imperfect they may be or how much they seem to be lacking, right? I know a lot of people have issues with Abuela for being pretty mean and unsympathetic throughout the film, and I certainly appreciate it on an intellectual level, you know, her characterization and where she's coming from and why she has that, and that's part of what the film's resolution is kind of showing her, her perspective, but it is kind of yada yada through that, frankly. And, and, and you know, like when you know, right at the climax, it's there. This is they lose it, and they have to face it. And then le- it feels like less than five minutes later, the movie's done. We're rolling credits. Like it's, that's a very sudden ending for me, at least. Um, I feel like they were trying to crap. Like like they hit they hit ninety minutes, and like oh crap, we have to finish the film. Let's go do, give a, give them a happy ending. And there's more to the story, which you you know you'll have to th- you have, is, just imagine on your own, right? You know. I feel like they're trying to cram too much in the themes into sort of a runtime. Like, okay, for example, Abuela goes on and on about how we have to help this community. We have to give back to this community and help this community, right? We never really see how they're helping the community behind, but beyond Luisa carrying donkeys and the mom, like, uh, healing people with food, right? Like, just how integral are the Madrigals to the family, right? Like, is it 
the the mountains that pop up when Casilda pops up that protects them from outsiders, right? Like, what is it like being like in an in, insulated community, right? And you know, why should we care, right? That this magic disappears, right? I mean, yes, obviously, you know, for the characters, it's important that you know something they've known their entire lives have gone away, right? But it's still, I still really never really got invested. It's like, okay, the magic is suddenly there and then it's taken away, and you didn't do do anything to earn the magic in the first place, right? Um, so you know, what did they do to earn this magic back, right? Um, and that I don't think was really ever fully answered for me. Where did the magic come from, right? Um, and you know, maybe trying to explain it too much is is kind of breaking the point, right? Like I feel like you know, there's definitely like a a whole magical realism element of this where you just kind of just go with it. Um, but I couldn't really just get over and just go with it, right? You know, I think this is one where I think the story and the world building were just sacrificed, I think, for the vibe and the moment-to-moment spectacle, right? Which certainly did very well, just lost on on that broader piece, right? So again, uh, overall, I think three out of five for me. So, you know, looking at these three Disney films, right, I think they all kind of exist on the spectrum with each other, right? Um, With Encanto and Raya on different ends on most things, with Luca kind of being the most average, right? So, for example, uh, if you're looking at who had the strongest, you know, kind of the strongest ending versus beginning, I think Encanto had a really strong beginning, right, in, in setting everything up, all the musical numbers to get everyone, you know, invested in, in the mystery and in, in who the family is. But again, it kind of rushes the ending at the end, right there. Uh, meanwhile, Raya kind of, you know, a little bit slow in the build-up to the beginning, um, but toward the end, right, like at, toward the climax of the film when, you know, there's that, there's, you know, that accident and everything going on, I think that ending was actually pretty satisfying um, of seeing the characters all come together and learn their lesson and, you know, um, learn to trust each other. I think that's kind of really satisfying. And, you know, again, Luca kind of mostly consistent throughout. The beginning was about the same as the ending, though it never really had, like, the true climactic moment kind of, or the true spectacle moment as with Encanto in the beginning or right at the end. Now, again, on a scale of, you know, spectacle to narrative, Raya is the most satisfying with a clear, if heavy-handed, beginning, middle, and end progression. Encanto, again, not quite the strongest, but it did have the strongest moment-to-moment, you know, moments of color, moments of vibrancy, which Raya kind of lacked. And Luca, again, came somewhere in the middle. Uh, In terms of animation, all pretty fine, you know, Disney and Pixar standard, you know, nothing outstanding compared to the things we've seen for the past couple of years. Um... And, you know, I think, I think, and, you know, I, I think that one other thing that's kind of worth noting out, at least two, and maybe all three, depending on how you interpret the character of Isabella Madrigal um, from Encanto, um, you know, at least most, two or three of these films, you know, had some form of queer representation, right? You can't tell me that Maya and Namari were not flirting with each other. Luca is basically, as I've seen floating around online, uh, Calamari by your name. Uh, so yay for that, you know, even if Disney can't, be Disney is just being Disney and couldn't out and confirm it canonically really. So yeah, those are the three Disney films. Now, of course, there are two more films in this category to go over. You know, we'll go over Flea really quickly. I'm going to talk about it a couple more times over the next couple of episodes. But again, you know, uh, is, again, nominated for animated feature as well, uh, as well as international for Denmark and best documentary feature. Follows the story of an Afghan refugee, Amin Nawabi, um, for, you know, kind of confessing a story that he has, a secret he had from 20 years ago as a refugee. Um, it's directed by Jonas Pohr Rasmussen, produced by Riz Ahmed and Nicola Costa Waldau. Um, it premiered at 2021 Sundance Film Festival Wonder World Documentary Award and was released theatrically December 3rd, 2021. Critics have it at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, audiences 94. Um, Letterboxd has it at 4.1 with 26,000 viewers. 
So we'll come back to Flea and I think like the actual structure and story of Flea itself um, in future episodes, right? Um, but I think today I want to focus on the animation of Flea. And I think, you know, whether you think Flea should win animated feature will, I think, define how you think about this category in general, right? Um, I think that, I will admit, I think of these five films, Flea probably has uh, the best narrative, the best story, the best subject matter, the best themes with regard to refugees, LGBT representation, and all that, right? Like, I think all of that is in Flea's favor to be, you know, arguably the best film nominated within this category. Now, that being said, I don't think it's the best animated film this year. Emphasis on the animated, right? Uh, it's a film that happens to be animated, but it doesn't make the most, I think, of the medium or pushes the field in any new directions that other films aren't already. At its core, you know, it's basically a rotoscoped, low-frame, low rotoscoped rendering of what Amin describes in his retellings. Um, you know, where other films, you know, in this category are going off of the ones or twos, maybe, um, which you know, again, twenty-four frames per second. Every different frame or every other frame has a different anim has a different uh, drawing on it. Um, you know, for here, it's like they're animating on the fours or even the sixes, right? Which is every four frames or every six frames, hence the very low frame count. Um, not so there's an argument that this film could have been done not sorry there is an argument this film could have been done uh in li not in animated only could have been live action you know his child like his child version you need to get a really good child actor which maybe they couldn't find and had to do it in animated to to, do, to depict this you know maybe having it be his memory right maybe you know having it be hey this is like con the contrast of like an animated style against a very serious subject matter or something um you know maybe the flashback moments meant to sort the horse and the emotions he faced on his journey right I, I could buy the argument for all of those. Um, and, you know, again, I don't think this film would have gotten the same notoriety, the same attention it would have. It had been, like, live action um, as opposed to how it currently is animated. But again, as far as for this category, best animated feature film, in my opinion, at least, I think it should be really the, the films that really do the most to push animation as a medium forward as opposed to a film that happens to be animated and i don't think this is the film that does that again you know great film i give it a four out of five i would just give the animation by itself one or two out of five overall but i think this more so goes to soha song the narrative of this if this film is and you know we'll certainly be talking about it again in future weeks now, we are talking about the film, I think, that, that highlights the best of what animated films have to offer. Um, this is probably this last film is probably my pick for what I hope to take home the prize this year. Um, that film is, of course, Missiles vs. the Machines from Sony Pictures Animation, currently airing on Netflix. Originally titled Connected, it is directed by Mike Rianda, who worked on Gravity Falls, uh, produced by Lord and Miller of Lego, Lego Movie and uh, Spider-Verse fame. Um, the story follows the dysfunctional Missiles family on a road trip across the country as they run into the robot apocalypse. As you do. Uh, it released on Netflix April 30th after a limited theater re release. Uh, the missiles are voiced by a uh, Abby J Jacobson, Danny McBride, uh, Maya Rudolph, and Mike Rianda. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 97% from critics and 88% from audiences, with Letterboxd giving it a 3.9 out of 238,000 viewers. Now, Sony Picture Animations most recently won the Oscar for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which, again, really pushed the envelope about what the field of animation can do. I mean, you know, talking about frame rates for a little bit, right? 
in Spider-Verse, you know, they had mixed frame rates. They had some of it on two, some of it on fours on the same picture to really give a different sense of movement between the different characters, give it that comic book feel, um, which gives me Sivers just thinking about, right? So high expectations for the studio um, after that win, and again, high expectations also for uh, Lord and Miller. So, you know, this film, frankly, didn't really have the fairest of expectations sent against it. Um, despite those elevated expectations, though, the film more than exceeded them, right? The animation here is distinct from any out there, from the character modeling, which had a really, like, watercolor-esque style to, you know, the little hand-drawn pops as if you know there's something katie had drawn in her back in her notebook right um you know that really i think characterizes her perspective on the world you know and gives it like that that unique aesthetic you know narrative wise i can't claim it's the most original out there but if it's going to be similar to anything i mean being similar to a goofy movie which is my favorite movie of disney probably ever um is is probably a good one to to be similar to right um i mean you know it's also not necessarily the one that you see the most often right it's you know a, a story about a teen who has trouble connecting with their parents and you know and ends up getting pulled into a road trip to try and bond with them and eventually finds a new appreciation for their family you know add in some iRobot and Terminator vibes and you know despite taking from things we have seen before it executes on all of these things really well right it doesn't it's not a lazy copy of any of them and what more it takes and remixes those adds new things to the formula so we haven't seen before right um you know it, and and the writing is really great too right you know i'm a sucker for when seemingly one-off jokes right that that was supposed to be played off with laughs early on in the film which this film is a barrel of laughs but you know these things that are laughs early on come back to actually be oh wow that actually came back around and was actually important uh for the end of the film right for the final climax which you, in ways you didn't see coming the dialogue and banter was hilarious right again stitch in stitches watching this and i think the writing also really for me you know as a millennial third i just turned 30 um really i think is the first time i've really been able to see a piece of media that i think makes me, I think, better understand the Gen Z uh, perspective a little bit more for, you know, I don't watch TikToks or whatever, but you know, I think this is a film that really, I think is a kind of like the early harbinger of the Gen Z, of reflecting the Gen Z generation, right? Um, all of that, I think, and, you know, the tried and true themes of, you know, appreciating family even when they're not perfect, you know, and writing this out, you know, this sounds a lot kind of like Encanto, which somehow the Mitchells did a little bit better, um, but in, in any case, you know, you got a winning recipe with that, right? You know, at the end of the day, Mitchells versus the Machine just had a lot of heart and really inventive style and Honestly, there's not much more I really want out of the best animated feature, right? Um, you know, it just executed so well. It pushed the boundaries. And, you know, I, I honestly have zero complaints about this film. It's it's nearly perfect. Five out of five for me. So, yeah, again, if it's not obvious, my pick for best animated feature is Mitchell vs. the Machine. So if I were betting man, I'd actually probably bet that the Encanto probably takes it just because of the weight of the mouse behind it. But, hey, you never knew. Netflix might be, be able to wrap it up. Uh, maybe Disney gets the vote split or between Luca and, and, and Encanto. Who knows? But, yeah. Um, also, you know, I want to give a shout out real quick to a film that's not nominated, but I did see, hoping it would be a Bell, which is the uh, Mamoru Hosoda anime film um, released, you know, earlier this year. Um, unfortunately, you know, I think G Kids, the distributor, didn't really do a good job of promoting the film, even though they usually have a pretty good track record when it comes to these things with, uh, you know, the Cartoon Saloon films or even Mamoru Hosoda's most recent film, uh, you know, Mirai getting a nomination, right? Um, unfortunately, it didn't get, I think it got kind of overshadowed by the success of Encanto as well as omicron coming out around the same time so alas i don't think this is a this this was a, a good situation for bell to get nominated um you know hopefully he mama Hosoda comes back and gets uh gets a nomination in the future bell i think is one of those cases where it really swung for the fences i think the animation here is 
the strongest animation, even more than the Mitchells, I think. It's the strongest animation of all six films I've talked about so far today on this episode. Just the mix of CG, the hand-drawn, you know, I think it's really good there. I think the script probably could have used a little bit of work. It probably was, like, kind of all over the place. Um, being at one part, like, a homage to uh, Beauty and the Beast, but also going back to Mamoru Hosoda's films of internet, internet connectedness and commentary on social media and so on, and all of these different things, I think a little bit too cluttered, right, to some degree, so, um, I mean, yeah, I think that uh, Bell definitely swung for the fences and missed in some regards, but hit where it wanted to hit for sure, and honestly, I, I would have wanted to see something like that really ambitious, really get, get, get nominated for that, but alas, not to be this year, hopefully in future years. Uh, before we wrap the episode, just want to go over the nominees from other categories that I've seen actually before the nominations were announced. I um, didn't get a chance to join the nominations episode. Um, since today is basically Disney Day, you know, why not go uh, over the visual effects category, which has three nominees I have seen that are all belong to the House of Mouse. Uh, these are Sangsi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, Spider-Man No Way Home, and Free Guy. Um, they all fall into the you know big blockbuster that the Academy really takes seriously for its more prestigious awards. But you know, um, but because they got to get some sort of recognition for people to get invested in the show to some degree, um, you know, they will nominate uh, more of the big blockbusters for this stuff. So um, no. Is that just so they don't be more irrelevant than they are already? Uh, of course, they are trying that out with favorite movie and best most cheerable moment on Twitter, um, which are basically going to be special awards in No Way Home, but that's a whole other con- conversation. In any case, though, I have seen all these three films in theaters pretty close to when they came out, um, in September for Sanctuary, August for uh, Free Guy, and December for No Way Home. Overall, great fun, right? Sanctuary, in particular, I honestly could have said I wish to see a best supporting actor for Tony Leung as Wen Wu, but, you know, as with Raya, you know, I think it was always great seeing Asian representation in front of and behind the camera here. I won't say I agree fully with the VFX here, right? The VFX, I think, come in, you know, toward the end with the, um, you know, with the uh, with with the with the big CG fets as the end of all Marvel films, right? And you know, to some degree, I, I imagine probably some CG work for you know, kind of hiding the stunt lines and so on. You know, honestly, if there was a category for best stunt work, I think this one would be it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm not complaining that Santi's getting recognition, um, even if it's not for something I fully agree it should be getting recognition for. Um, in any case, Spider Man, you know, Spider Man, everyone and the mother has already seen the film at to the tune of 1.8 billion dollars globally. Um, I'm not sure what the statute of limitations are on spoilers but in any case again great visual spoilers with broad appeal um i will say honestly i'd forgotten how good william defoe was as the green goblin which shouldn't be a spoiler based on the trailers but yeah um the marvel machine is going to marvel and I look forward to the next chapter of no way home this definitely was probably one again definitely one of the most cheerworthy moments in theaters last year um and then finally free guy which is you know Ryan reynolds being deadpool without deadpool uh, from a 20th century uh, li- uh live action comedy a moderate box office success actually and you know, I can see the VFX nominations here coming to some degree um, even though I know some Death Races aren't fully happy with it you know it's not the most profound film it's kind of a dumb film if you think about it um, but it, it is it is dumb in a good way right it's dumb in, in the turn your brain off for a couple of hours and just enjoy like a wacky ride with some some jokes and so on that you shouldn't really be taking too seriously I mean that's the if the, that's the mindset you go in for for free guy then you know it's, you're gonna be exact get exactly what you want um, now I can't say you know with no having not seen no time to die um, but you know having seen dune that is kind of my pick I would be very surprised if anything except for dune actually wins uh, best visual effects. Honestly, I do also kind of wish that Ghostbusters Afterlife or Godzilla vs. Kong were able to make it in here, and I think I was more impressed by those VFX, but hey, what can you do? 
Uh, in any case, this episode has gone on for long enough. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about the international nominees as well as some acting nominees I've already seen. But, you know, but in the meantime, let me know what your favorite animated feature film and visual effects films were from this Oscars. Which ones do you think will win? And hey, which ones do you want to win? And which ones do you wish had been nominated? In any case, that wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how your Death Race is going over on Twitter at OscarsDRacecast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at Zeno.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show or on your podcast service of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. You'll use a review or just share with a movie-loving friend. Any of that's super helpful. You can directly support us at, on Patreon, link in the show notes. Also, link will be my letterbox, Ninja Boy, Boy with an I. Um, be sure to check out the Oscars Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits, AODR.net and OscarsDeathRace.com, as well as the Oscars Death Race uh, community Discord. Um, you know, uh, music is provided by Kevin MacLeod and Complicatformation.io. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. Um, that's it for this week. Uh, this has been Paul of the Oscars Death Race podcast. And until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees.